This is Returning to Base, a Mech Warrior Living Legends podcast. Today's topic is about the community development itself and where it even came from. Today's guests are Corn. Hello. Serpentis. Hello, everyone. And Harp. Hi there. And as always, I am your host, Warlord Kentax. So, my first question. For each of you, I suppose we'll start with uh, Serpentis. Was uh, what has been your role in the Mech Warrior Living Legends dev team? So yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so to best describe my role, um, it depends how you exactly look at it. Um, in a nutshell, I was basically the one that um, helped the team stick together, get everything organized, and just uh, make sure um, every everything in the team works well. We have the infrastructure we need. Everyone's aware of the deadline. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, it was basically a mix of uh, project manager and um, agile coach, basically. It's actually mostly like an agile coach if you look at it from a modern software development standpoint. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much that. Um, I've been uh, double teaming it uh, that way with Invictus, basically. Invictus, um, well, he's basically the one who's been carrying us um, all the time. Uh, and still is. And um, in, well, Invictus was taking care of um, everything relating to the game, uh, managing it, game design and such. I was just um, helping to make sure uh, that, yeah, everything works smoothly for the team and everything uh, goes well together that way. That's and so, when did you uh, when did you sign on to the dev team? Were you part of Wandering Samurai, or did you come on after development had already started up, or were you like right there at the very beginning of uh, the uh, the new community dev team? You could say I was right there at the beginning of the new community dev team. Uh, yeah, I definitely wasn't a part of um, of the old development team. Um, I was just a player back then. I wasn't even um, involved in the alpha tests or anything. Um, I wasn't even playing for a while uh, while uh, Living Legends was not in development. I just eventually came back. Um, and I saw people were still playing it. Like the, um, I think the real hero that we need to give a shout out to is Duelist, uh, who kept the Chaos March alive first and foremost. Like the, um, to explain it a bit for anybody who might not be familiar with it, uh, the Chaos March is basically an organized gaming event that's happened as good as every weekend for more than half a decade. And it's pretty much what kept all the veterans uh, of the game around and where the, what actually gave us the foundation and provided the groundwork for actually restarting the community development. Now, as for how we actually started again, uh, right before I actually came in and, and did, um, did all the project management for it, um, 
maybe that's a better one for you, Kentex, and for Corn to answer because you were actually ones who get who got the ball rolling. Yeah. Uh, so why did you join with the MechWarrior Living Legends pod, uh, 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 project instead of some other video game project? It's just been my favorite game, honestly. <laughs> like, um, I'm going to describe it best. Um, I don't actually know when exactly I started with MechWare Living Legends. It was probably like 2011, 2012, and I just had a fucking blast with the game. Like, um, it's just been seriously my, my, my favorite uh, multiplayer game of all times, just because of the, the tactical depth it provided, because of being a huge fan of the whole MechWarrior IP. It was just... It's basically also led to the player base to really decline um, after that as well. Uh, but eventually, well, um, I got over that and I was just like, yeah, I just want to play this again, you know? And I was looking, are there still players? And I saw, yeah, cool. There are still players here. And I don't know. I think the ones who actually gave me the, like, uh, the, the idea... Like, hey, we could actually continue that. I think that was literally when uh, Kentex, when you and and Korn actually said, "Yeah, let's try to continue this." And I was like, "Fuck yeah!" That 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 was the first time I realized. Well, yeah, nobody's developing it anymore. But why the hell are we not doing it? And that that was basically just when I when it clicked, and I was like, "Yeah, of course I'm gonna do that. I want Living Legends again." <laughs> that was pretty much all the motivation motivation it needed. So when you first started out with the development team, you weren't like leading it at first. That role sort of changed over time, right? Yeah, basically, basically. Um, how did that actually start? Um, I think originally um, the, the two people who, who got it going uh, were uh, Kentex and Korn. Um, I think it was... It's been a quite a long time. Uh, I think I, I was just helping to organize stuff, like facilitate some meetings and helping everyone stay on track. And I think eventually, Korn, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think um, you were just asking me basically to be second in command. Uh, we did it like that for a while. And after a while, Korn was like... Um, he would like to spend time um, on on, um, on other uh, things, and well, he, we were basically just looking at uh, who wants to take over the lead role. Once again, I have to emphasize the lead role is on a level on the team and um, all our team and project stuff, the product-wise, uh, Invictus, uh, well, game-wise, I should say, Invictus has always been the lead. Um, yeah. I think it just organically happened. Like there was some time of just, you know, gaining the trust of the team, working well with everybody. It's just my approach is just, you know, be helpful um, and just let things happen. And eventually that happened because uh, I guess uh, my work has been helpful for things. And um, that's the role of, that worked between the team, between me and everyone involved. So, uh, why are you still here years later, or why did you leave the development team? I suppose you're still kind of here in a way, but uh, uh, yeah. yeah, both those questions. <laughs> Two questions. So uh, you say why I'm still here and why I left the development team. Okay, well, let's answer them one after the other. Well, why I'm still here is because I hold 
really amazing memories to this. Like developing on MacWarrior Living Legends was a fucking blast. Like it, it was really amazing, and I have I have really fond memories um, to all of this. Honestly, it's it's been a great time, and I feel I feel really happy about the the stuff we've accomplished together, and that I that I've been able to help everyone accomplish with that. It's just been, uh, yeah, it's been amazing working on this. As for um, why I eventually um, stopped actively developing is uh, for me, and it actually kind of uh, goes together. Basically, um, I haven't actually worked on anything um, games or software development related before that. And well, first of all, MechWarrior Living Legends actually made me figure out uh, a few of the things I'm good at, like um, the whole people management thing, most of all. Um, and I basically, I used this experience in my portfolio, sort of, and actually started working in the games industry with that. Um, I, I used uh, Macquarie Living Legends as a reference, uh, got in as a QA tester, did that for a few years. And well, as the games industry goes, uh, yeah, it's a pretty busy field. So soon enough, I just was uh, out of time and energy to actually have a side project uh, on it as well, since uh, at this point, I just needed to focus on uh, getting my career going pretty much. And that was pretty much uh, what happened. At the same time, what I also have to say, uh, it wasn't just that. Um, one of my emphasis uh, that I that I always put uh, on things is, you know, when I work with a team, my top priority is always that it works well. So what I try to get at is I want to get a team to a point where it can function by itself well every everything is well oiled basically um and everyone everything just works smoothly so actually my ideal development team is one where i haven't even really don't even really have to be active uh, in everyday um interaction just because it works that well it's a fucking hard um hard journey to go there especially with um with volunteer teams, because you don't really have much choice on how you build them. You gotta, um, you gotta take take who you get, basically. That uh, if you, if I uh, if I'm bringing that point across well, basically, you have a very limited number of volunteers, and everyone comes with their own personality. Everyone comes with their own ideas for the game, and you gotta have to somehow get them all together on the table and make sure everyone can work together um, and can get that going. And I do have the feeling that um, despite, all the, uh, despite all the troubles that, uh, that inevitably come up in development of a game, um, I think by the time I actually um, phased out of development, I think the team actually was was at a point where it was really self-sufficient and self-sustaining. Like, I think I phased out like three years or so ago, and the team is still going, still uh, producing new updates, which is fucking amazing. Like, it, <laughs> I haven't really participated much other than say hello now and then, and even that was uh, pretty rare. But it's just been really great to see all of this and see that it's still going. That's 
that's a really amazing feeling. And yeah, that's also why I'm back, I think. I mean, <laughs> short, uh, short summary of why I'm back. Uh, Kentex just said, hey, I'm doing a podcast. Want to join in? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty surprising that a project can keep going for this long under simply volunteer power. It's amazing. Um, yeah, so Corn, Harp, I'm not sure which one of you wants to go first, but it'll basically be the same questions that I asked Serpentis. Uh, uh, what has been your role with the dev team? All right, I'll let, I'll let Harp go. You, you can go first. All right. Second. All right. Well, I did some coding at the beginning of the community project, but nowadays I'm mostly responsible for infrastructure. That's things like code repository, website, file server, game servers, you know, fun box, and doing the work of actually releasing the game. So you could say I'm pretty much in a semi-passive role at this point. And when did you start contributing? Were you part of the original Wandering Samurai, or did you uh, were you one of the founding members of the community uh, development? Well, I've always been watching Live and Legend since before its release, but I've only been a player. I became a part of the dev team at the start of the community effort. Uh, I was approached by, I think it was Korn, and pretty much immediately started getting things into gear. I haven't really been active lately, but well, maybe that could change in the future. I'm not sure yet. And uh, how come you joined up with MechWarrior Living Legends instead of uh, some other video game project? Oh, well, I've always been a big fan of Battletech and MechWarrior in general. Ever since I found uh, MechWarrior 2 in a game bin as a kid, I pretty much couldn't hook on the entire series. It's been with me most of my life. And when I saw Little Legends, it was such an awesome looking mod, and naturally I was attracted to something like that. It grabbed my attention. So you already mentioned that you started out as a player and now you're running infrastructure. Uh, how did your role change over time? Initially, I did some code work and uh, contributed to things like uh, fixing the cheat protection or, or minor bug fixes. Uh, but as, I, as things went on, it became a bit harder for me to figure everything out and I saw that others had it uh, under control. Well, not really under control, but uh, better than me, mostly. So I was pretty okay with the fact that I was responsible for the infrastructure and nothing else. Um, so uh, what sort of, I do remember that servers were different before you took over because before you took over there was Huntress uh, at least in its first iteration and there were a couple of others uh, and the servers behave like 
way differently now, especially with uh, map selection and stuff like that. Did you have any hand in that? In fact, I did, yes. Uh, I was the first to write scripts that actually released the default crisis level rotation with uh, some kind of map voting system, which was unheard of at the time. Mm, it took a few years to work out all the kinks, but I would say it worked pretty well. Of course, nowadays, it's no match for what the 12.3R guys are doing. Uh, I'm not really maintaining it anymore, so it's kind of deprecated at this point. But uh, it was a stepping stone. Yeah, with uh, the new um, 12 Vegan Rangers uh, servers run by uh, Rick Hunter, it's as though he's standing upon the shoulders of giants because I don't think he'd have his voting system quite like it is without you providing a foundation. Yeah, you could say that. Um, all right. And so how come you're still helping out with uh, Living Legends and how come you haven't left for other big projects? Well, Little Legends is a really cool game, if many fond memories of it. And I don't think I would ever give that up. I may not be actively playing much or doing death work lately, and for a time I've distanced myself from the team for a while. That was mostly due to lack of time. Um, I don't see that as much of a problem. Uh, the fact that I'm still maintaining infrastructure means I cannot easily pass that role on to someone else. I'm pretty much stuck here, and I don't mind at all. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad that you're uh, providing all this for the game to continue. You're welcome. All right, so that's just about all the questions I have for you. Um, Eventually, we'll get into the questions that are for everyone to answer, just uh, as they as they see fit. But I think we should move on to Corn. So, Corn, uh, yes. What has your role been with the uh, dev team? Were you part of the original team, or did you? And I, I feel like a broken record saying this question repeatedly because I already know the answer. Uh, or were you at there at the beginning of the community development? Um, I would say that I was just like every, um, the rest of the guys here. I was just a player in the beginning. I followed it very closely. Almost like every day I would log on and go on the website and see if there's anything new, um, anything I could maybe save or see what else was being developed. And it was like, it was a real drawing card for me. And I, I wanted to help, but Back then, I didn't have any expertise, and I didn't know what to do. So I just, I just played the game, and I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, I got involved with the new development team um, as originally one of the lead figures until I had something else I had to tend to, and then I chose um, Invictus because he was obviously the obvious choice with the most experience, and I had Serpentus take up um, second in command, which was probably the best out of anyone else I could have picked for the job. Um, 
And so what I ended up doing was doing a lot of the sound work for the game along eventually when Andrew arrived. Um, I felt that sound was a very big role to play in a MechWarrior game. Not only are the visuals important, but um, seeing and feeling what is happening before you can also be very important as the sound that it produces. If you've got an AC-20 that's like a BB gun, well, no one's going to really use it unless it sounds like an autocannon 20. So that was kind of my little contribution to the team was sound and pitching in now and then for balance or directional purposes of where things should go or what we should add. Uh, yeah, if you haven't already listened to it, uh, I recommend uh, going and listening to um, Returning to Base Episode 5, uh, where we interview Landros and um, Andrew. So that way, between Corn uh, here and uh, Andrew and Landros, you can get sort of a pretty good history of uh, the sound development of Living Legends. That's both uh, an invitation for you personally, Corn, and for uh, uh, yeah, and and for uh, our listeners. I definitely need to go hear that one, literally. <laughs> um. So we already established when you started contributing. Um. So why did you pick Living Legends and not like some other, uh, maybe higher profile mod or something like that? Uh, to be honest, there was literally nothing else that was interesting to me at the time than MechWarrior. MechWarrior has been a such an important part of my history. I grew up with it with a as a child. I played MechWarrior too. I played all the previous titles. And when I saw what they were going to do with Living Legends, it completely just, you know, it just blew my mind. And, and I just thought, this is something that's never been done and probably will never be done again in a MechWarrior setting. It's basically Battlefield set in the Battletech universe. You've got, it's, it's the best of both worlds combined. And I just thought it was a shame seeing Wandering Samurai having to close their doors and not finish what they set out to do. And I just thought, why don't we just continue? Why don't we just follow on in their footsteps and finish what they started and deliver to the people what they've been wanting. And I felt pretty good that we managed to get the ball rolling and we are still here today providing content and keeping things running as best as we can. And I don't think I would have changed it for any other game if I look back on it. All right. Well, uh, so... Why did you leave the development team? And uh, I'll give you an opportunity here to plug for any of your other projects you've worked on since then. <laughs> well, um, when everything started coming together and um, people were put in place and we had more or less a pipeline of what we, what we wanted to add and where we wanted to go, I kind of realized that I didn't have the expertise that someone like Invictus had. You know, he was part of the old... He was a new member of the old team, but he still had the most experience at the time. And I just thought, let me hand it over to him. He's a better guy for this job. And um, he has carried, pretty much carried this project right through until today. 
Um, I went off and did other modding projects for Stalker, Soundwise, and then I eventually uh, returned to do the sounds for an update for this game. And then I moved on to MechWarrior 5, where I'm still now doing various sound mods and helping with the community there. So that's kind of where I am at the moment. I, I do pitch in back and forth when new sounds are needed for a release, such as a new weapon that they make. And I'm, I'm still around. I just, I think the sounds have reached what they needed to be reached. And if we ever do another sound pass, I'm more than willing to assist. Excellent. So uh, uh, what sort of stuff do you do now? I mean, that's, uh, you kind of answered that question. Uh, MechWarrior 5 sound mods, doing it solo this time with, with no one around. It's been very complicated learning because the programs and the, the editor that we have to use is different from NMod. And so it basically boiled down to hit this bunch of keys, compile, build, and pray for the best. And that's just, you know, hitting your head against the wall, as Invictus would put it, until it works. And that's how I just learned and learned. And I've got a lot of experience now, and I'm glad because it's, it's a franchise that I love making sounds for because sounds, I feel, are very important, especially in an immersive universe as Battletech. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, let's see. So I think I should probably answer those questions too since I was there at the beginning of the community um, development team creation. Yes. Um, so my role in the dev team has been pretty loose. Uh, I was there when, uh, Korn and I were, uh, asking Invictus repeatedly. So how come development isn't going on anymore? What's going on? Who do we need to talk to? What's, what's up? And so, uh, between talking to a whole bunch of the, um, old devs and, uh, Invictus, Korn and I were able to sort of, uh, get enough people in contact with each other that when Invictus wanted to actually, you know, start looking at the files himself, uh, they, they had access to them and, uh, and, uh, certainly helped him with his, uh, motivation. Cause I think the, initially he was a little reluctant and, uh, once there were enough people asking him, Hey, you gonna, you gonna do that thing. You gonna start developing. Uh, and why wouldn't we develop saying things like that? Uh, I think that really helped, uh, get him and a lot of other people interested because, uh, I know some people were worried about maybe getting a cease and desist or some other, some sort of legal ramifications, uh, seeing as we, the new community development team didn't have necessarily the same license that wandering samurai did. Was it, was it transferable? We didn't know. It was an uncertainty. And so, uh, so that my, my role was getting the ball rolling. Uh, since then, it's changed a little bit. Uh, I've, I did help out with a little bit of, uh, of the user interface, uh, only in the creation of some, uh, raster graphics for, uh, our UI specialist, uh, Star Wraith to insert into the game. Uh, he's since left the uh, the team, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later in this episode. Um, and uh, yeah, I started contributing right at the very beginning of of this. I was mostly talking. Uh, it actually 
came from a perspective of I wanted to know how we could change the existing mechs in the game uh, to have more distinct weapon systems, weapon systems that were less overpowered. I was concerned about balance and uniqueness. Uh, and that's probably been one of my longest continuing roles is suggesting uh, variants. Like Invictus is ultimately in charge of what variant goes into the game and how it gets implemented. Uh, but I'll often be one of the people leading the charge on a particular variant. So there's there are a lot of them in the game that have maybe a sprinkle of flavor that uh, came from ideas that I had. Uh, or ideas that other people had that I decided to share with Invictus. And um, so, yeah, uh, we'll probably have an episode on that in the future on uh, variants. I was hoping to have one with Kami and Invictus so we could hear about uh, uh, modern variant design philosophy versus uh, the old guard variant design philosophy, because they're clearly different. a good example would be the uh, <laughs> the heavy goss um, Shiva from uh, the original dev team. Oh my gosh, two heavy gosses. That's uh, a bit much. And so we don't have that anymore, not because the plane can't mount it, but because uh, it just creates a ridiculous uh, balancing issue in the game. Um, so yeah, my role over time, I guess it has changed a bit now that I do this podcast. And I've done, I contributed a lot to the uh, Chaos March. I did some graphics for Chaos March. I did some uh, advertisements. I even went to conventions and uh, passed out flyers for Living Legends, including to Jordan Wiseman and George Ledoux and a few other people I could name drop if I wanted to. But those are like the two biggest uh, people I probably, uh, oh, and Flying Debris. I gave uh, Flying Debris a, a of flyer too. That was fun at Metcon. Um, so yeah, I definitely did some promotion at PAX and a few other conventions that I went to. It never seemed to get a whole lot of players from that, but it was fun. Uh, why am I still here? Well, I I'm a I'm a player. I play this game a lot. I play this game more than any other game, and uh, I got started in it uh, because I had. I guess I'm not sure what the very first. BattleTech thing I ever got into was I know that's other people it's the books or maybe it's the original minis or a video game um, but for me probably the first I'd ever played was either Mech Assault or might have been uh, the WizKids Clicks game I'm not sure which one came first probably the WizKids Clicks game uh, yeah that would make sense um, and after that WizKids I, I played that for a bit. Uh, never really thought much of it. Like I, I, I played it for a bit, had a bunch of them. I was more into collecting than into playing the game. Uh, but eventually I got to this point where uh, I saw the advertisement on ModDB for MechWarrior Living Legends. Uh, I was already on ModDB because I was part of the uh, Tyranid mod dev team for... Uh, uh, Dawn of War, and I was doing some of their sounds. And uh, when I saw that ad for uh, Living Legends, it I just went, "Whoa, that looks really good! I'm excited." So I, I clicked on it, hit the watch button, and once it came out, I started playing just a couple months after it released. 
Um, I even made sure to buy a computer that could run crisis. I mean, with quotes around it, run crisis. <laughs> nothing could run crisis back then. And still nothing really can. <laughs> Very frustrating, of course. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I played for quite a while and eventually I joined the 12th Vegan Rangers and now I'm here. Okay. So here's a question for all of you. Feel free to, uh, pipe up with any, uh, responses who else contributed to the community development team early on because i know we've had a number of developers that uh they don't always get uh mentioned all the time or uh or maybe they're not part of the team anymore and i can't get a hold of them or whatever so they won't be able to you know answer these questions for themselves I think there was a shit ton of people, uh, but I don't actually know who all of them were here from the start. I mean, obviously it was Star Rave uh, who joined pretty early and did a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, uh, who else? Um, one of the old devs who came back, I can't remember his name now, but he helped out with a lot of the particle system, the new particle um, effects system. Yeah. Did Ingrader come uh, back for a bit? I don't think Ingrader really uh, joined much. I mean, there's there's quite a few layers to it, actually. Well, who we should definitely mention probably is Eric, who also helped with um, development, um, well, or generally helped out a lot. Eric actually did some code work. Uh, I remember working with him on the cheat protection and some other things. Yeah, yeah, he, he's helped uh, a lot with um, with the code, especially right the cheat protection that was such a big uh, that was such a big issue for us. Um, that actually, I think, almost uh, blocked us from launching. And I mean, hell, it even gave us issue after the launch day. That was a big um, big lesson for us in terms of <laughs> QA and general uh project management stuff that's that was a good good thing to learn or helped helped a lot there um uh, i think spooky helped us a little bit with things on the side i think with with stats and a few other small things it was right at the start it wasn't many i mean to be fair um for the first half year or so it was mostly actually um just work on on the rebalancing of it, um, like we, we we only got technical access, sort of, we were only able to really modify things um, after I think half a year or so after we already started. And back then it was just rebalancing. So a lot of it was just players who helped to test stuff, have like test runs and um, yeah, trying to get um, <laughs> to modifications of the XML files. Yeah, I mean, to what degree should we go into that part here? I mean, uh, I can nitty gritty. <laughs> I can tell some more stories on that as well if that's uh, relevant to us here. <laughs> I think XML and sheet protection were our biggest nightmares. Yeah, yeah. I, I it was half a year, I think, till till we got there. So. Um, most of it was just a, a small core group of people with um, with everyone uh, that, that we've mentioned already uh, 
banging their head against the walls. Um, and everyone else was just supporting them as good as they can um, with that. Um, it's funny that you mentioned cheat protection because, uh, you know, you all probably remember the flying beat stick Shiva. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I once saw in game a literal flying beat stick. It was the, the Mark II and it was flying up in the air, just shooting at planes and all sorts of things. Yeah, there's actually a few cheaters in the game, but they're not doing things our cheat protection is supposed to fix. Our cheat protection is mostly meant to prevent modified files from taking any effect. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen any of those really glaring examples of cheaters. Like, I've seen plenty of people taking advantage of exploits in the game, but it's not quite to the degree of, like, a flat-out cheat. It's just, like, they're they're in the game, they're not typing things in the code, they're not injecting things, they're not doing any of that sort of stuff. No, they're they're just, they're taking advantage of what's already in the game, like uh, I shouldn't list any of the things. Yeah. Right. Well, you see, the cheat protection, uh, the, the issue we had with the cheat protection wasn't actually so much that there was a lot of cheaters. The issue was um, the cheat protection had a really strict um, system of controlling files. So we actually had to get the cheat protection to the point where it wouldn't trigger at any modification that we actually did to the files. That was the actual problem. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, the, the ironic thing is it was actually my fault that the cheat protection was as strict as it was, seeing as I was running no fun box. Uh, it was kind of the point of the cheat protection to prevent that from being possible. So if you're an avid wiki reader, you've probably heard of No Fun Box because there's an article that contains a reference to it. But for those of our listeners that uh, haven't uh, read that article, Harp, what's No Fun Box? Oh, well, so a bit of history. So back before the sheet protection, there used to be a guy named Tempfage on the farms uh, who created a video showcasing tweet jump chats in-game. Uh, he wanted to show how things could be done better, and he was pretty much uh, labeled a cheater and banned for his troubles. I kind of took inspiration from that, uh, the tweaking of the banning, and thought, why not create a server so everybody could evenly test out some ideas and I could have some data to back up my own suggestions. Um, so I set up a server. Some of the things I tweaked were Direct fire clan alarms, which were uh, arcing back then, still arcing back then. Uh, I tried removing coolant. I had new variants and a few other things. There also were fun events like adding a firebomb harasser, which was as much of a suicide bomber as you could expect, or putting dual log toms on Hogmas, which was tons of fun, but made it violently whip around whenever we fired them. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so, so, so the server was actually a huge success, but the devs weren't all too happy about it. And it eventually led to my own ban from the forums and the introduction of the cheap protection. Wow. The result of it all. So I know for sure, certain we're not going to be able to get 
a mention in here for everybody that contributed. That that just be impossible. Yeah. Uh, well, there is one I would like to uh, mention, and that's uh, Ivan, who did a lot of the new maps for release builds. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, would, definitely. I would like to uh, take take my hat off to him because a lot of the maps he designed, like uh, Valley Forge, uh, was a really, really it's a great looking and great BattleTech feeling kind of map. And then he continued to deliver a few more as the reasons went on. And so that's who I would like to say, like for an honorable mention, to go to him is one of the map makers. It's funny you mentioned him because uh, we're going to be doing a podcast uh, recording pretty soon here, uh, and he's going to be one of the guests. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's uh, a current uh, system he's been working on for uh, as many of the maps as he has access to to uh, add in special time of day um, features for just about every map. And he's including inclement weather conditions and all sorts of other stuff like that. So now we've got clear dune, hazy dune, dark dune, mm. uh, based on the map time. And so you can use server settings to potentially randomize these map settings. And uh, uh, and it's really awesome because you can have you can start it just before the sands roll in, or start it just after, or just after, or maybe like right before the sands disappear. It's really awesome. Revolution in crisis. Mm-hmm. That is super cool. It's amazing. Like all these years later, still finding new things to add. And yeah. I just played uh, Wildlands yesterday, and Wildlands it, it was completely beset by fog from one side like, of the map to the other. Like pea soup fog. Yeah. Holy crap! <laughs> that must have been entertaining. Yeah, you can only see maybe five or six hundred meters in front of you at, at best, which uh, by uh, crisis standards is pretty darn pea soup. Yeah, I would imagine because everything's now clouded, you've got more chance to flank without being, you know, seen halfway across the map. Well, and not only that, but uh, there are now um, three forward bases instead of only two. Okay, so it just shows you how long my place. Cool. Well, I mean, it only just the new version just came out what two days ago. Yeah, awesome, definitely, definitely gotta give that a try again. Um, I wanted to say one thing as well. Like while we're at the credits, um, I, I want to thank just all of the players as well who've been hanging on, like all of the veterans who've been hanging around. Um, a lot of them have been helping out with with testing a lot um, as it is like just testing all the rebalancing like a, a big um, a big step for us uh, was actually as the first thing fixing so many glaring balancing issues that were a problem in the game that kind of well the meta game was stale first of all but that wasn't actually the biggest issues there was just balancing variants that just kind of completely broke the game and since it's been around and unchanged so long. Um, People knew them, so anybody could just go on and sort of, well, almost grief with that by picking the cheesiest variants and kind of ruining everyone else's game. So um, all the veterans who've helped out testing that, or even just who've been staying around keeping the game alive, I think they all deserve a big thank you as well. And, well, once again, all the Chaos March crew with Duelist, first of all, 
who who kept it alive in the first place. There's a funny little um, little memoir about the beta testing with veterans as well, and kind of a lesson that we learned. Like, um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to really rework the whole economy of the game. So the ranking up is more interesting, uh, more intuitive, and all of that. But the thing is, we tested this very thoroughly. The problem is, all the people we had around to test were people who played this for years. So we, we finally honed and, and crafted this new game balance for, I think, weeks, or if, if not more. And then we launched the thing. And then we realized, yeah, we finally tweaked it for a really fucking long time. But we tweaked it only with veteran players who played the game for years on end. So now all the new players joined and basically the economy was completely fucked because as a new player, you just had no chance to even advance because that we completely didn't balance for that. That, that was a pretty fun uh, learning experience actually for how um, where you get your alpha testers from really makes a difference with how you need to balance stuff and also why, uh, yeah, Getting, getting fresh players and releasing things very regularly is a very important thing, I think, for games and software products in general. <laughs> oh, I definitely have to say the player base for Living Legends, despite it being small, has to be one of the, the most yeah. dedicated groups I've ever seen. Just, just in general, you know, the people who develop it, the people who play it, like, being around for this long and still enjoying it really says something. Yeah, definitely. It's like even even joining in like after five years and or more, and still seeing the same same names on. Uh, not a lot of games can say that. Like knowing the same people in the community who still play after that long, and not just that. The actual game still being around, with the infrastructure still running, and uh, the game still being developed. Like it's been released in two thousand nine. Uh, tell a few more games that have been around that long, and still are being actively patched and actively getting out new content. I, I, I mean, there's only like one or two of the top of my head, but yeah, I think BattleTech. Uh, the Battletech community is definitely one of the most passionate yeah. out of a lot of franchises. I mean, there's Star Wars and that, but Battletech is pretty well-driven in terms of passion for this kind of universe. Yeah, 100%. And that's, you see it in a community, but also um, in the whole development team. Like That, that was one of the, the greatest experiences, working on Living Legends, like just the passion that the team brings. Uh, and I think that is really what, what fuels a project like that. Because, like, yeah, if, if you have a company um, and you make something, you have a paycheck to, um, uh, to motivate people to go there. Obviously, that shouldn't be the only motivation and uh, people work for other reasons too. But there is a paycheck and that's, that is a big factor. But if you do something where you cannot afford to pay anyone or there's no... No other real rewards for that. Uh, you need the passion of the of the people who contribute, and just just the amount of that that people have brought into it. It was simply amazing. Just 
not just the hours that people have um, poured into this game, but also like just the quality, I gotta say. Like, I, I have worked at game studios that have produced a lower quality of assets, of general BUX, game design, balance, whatever, uh, whatever aspect you want to consider. They've produced a lower quality than Living Legends did. Obviously, there is a lot to be improved still, and if there was more budget, there could be, well, or if there was more manpower, let's say that, um, since there isn't any budget, then there could be a lot to be improved still, needless to say. But still, what so comparably few people have managed to get going here, and in what quality, it's, it's been pretty amazing just by passion and just wanting to do this and wanting to make the best possible game because this is the game they want to make. That's that's just been amazing. Our, it is, well, it will be our little legacy to the Battletech universe. Yeah. Living Legends, yeah. Name checks out. It's still living, and it'll probably one day go down as a legend. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a while still. I think Landros, Landros. I think Landros was uh, saying, was it Landros? Uh, a couple episodes ago was saying that Living Legends was a title he'd never really liked. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of long-winded. <laughs> Seem to stand the test of time. Yeah, I, I think it's fitting. Like, yeah, like there's not a lot of games where the title is that fitting <laughs> to the history of the game. Oh, of course not. <laughs> and there's, I mean, over all these years, there's been so many memories that you'll you'll keep for the rest of your life, and you know the experience that you had, the people that you meet. I'll just, it was probably the best project I ever worked on and probably will ever work on ever again. I really enjoyed it that much. Yeah, same. It's been awesome. Let's see. Um, well, I guess we would be able to answer this question without Invictus being here. Um, how is the vision of the community version different from the original? Like, what sort of unique design choices make it different from Wandering Samurai's version? The balancing, first and foremost. I hope I'm not cutting anyone out here. Um, I think one of the big, big differences is um, the, the former development team, they had their vision was making a game that, that looks really cool and basically making this sort of industry portfolio game. At least that's, that, that's, that's the impression it made. I wasn't in the original dev team, so um, uh, <laughs> I might be wrong here. but um, Yeah, maybe Kami will come, come by yeah. next week in um, my recording with him and he'll, he'll uh, just... Uh, you know, chew you out for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's free too. <laughs> but basically, what they wanted is make a really awesome mech game that is, that looks really cool, is technologically really cool, like has a lot of awesome features, and it does. And they made a really good game. And the it plays thing, like um, uh, Battlefield. 
Exactly, exactly that. I'm pretty sure um, they'll they'll get uh, much further into the division next time. The thing um, that that actually stayed unfinished, uh, at least from 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 my experience uh, with with the whole timeline and then picking it up again, was um, actually really giving it um, the amount of work to balance the whole game and put the the game design in like. Uh, that that is the whole in-game economy with upgrading your mechs. It it was the whole um, balancing the variants uh, correctly, and all those small game design choices that are basically the lifeblood of keeping a multiplayer game alive um, by making every match replayable and replayable again without the meta game becoming stale, without someone discovering a variant um, that that is just overpowered and then just using and abusing it again and again, which is basically what happened um, in the time when the development uh, stopped. So um, there was a load of work just uh, working on that first. Well, that and just getting a lot of cool new assets in. And You know, now that I think about it, I think one of the big reasons why um, <clears throat> the uh, development of a mech lab was put on hold uh, and at this point it's canceled the, one of the big reasons for that was not just the how difficult it was going to be. It was not just any sort of fear of competing with commercial products over that. It was also the fact that the community development had really started from, you know, a balance perspective. That you know, like when I was asking uh, Invictus, like how we could change the Mauler or how we could change some other mech, uh, all those questions that I had and all, and a lot of the changes, early changes that Invictus made were all about the balance. And so because of that, I think that that's a big reason why the um, uh, Mech Lab was never really pushed with yeah. this um, development team because Mech Lab really interferes with uh, developers' ability to balance the game. Exactly. That was for at least for us, as far as I'm aware, that was the biggest reason. It would have thrown a major wrench into just trying to comprehend how to balance it. If you can suddenly start swapping yeah. weapon systems left, right, and center across all of those assets, yeah. you know, exactly. it would have been impossible. Exactly, and that's the thing. Uh, um, there's already so many variables that make the game insanely complex. Like um, there's a load of weapon systems and combinations that all um, play a factor in it. But that's the thing is, um, by not having a mech lab, um, you can balance um, things out manually that you couldn't otherwise. The thing is, if you look um, at it from a gameplay perspective, uh, from that. Compared to Mechasy, they have different geometries. That means they will have different hitboxes. And they will always behave in slightly different ways. Which means the first thing you'd get if you have a mech lab, um, people will just pick the chassis that has a better geometry, for instance, stuff like that. Of course, you can always also still find ways to balance around it with different costs, um, different combinations that you allow, etc., etc. But the, that is then even more of a nightmare to actually make it work 
So um, keeping it with fixed variants makes this a lot um, more manageable. But I think Invictus can probably describe this a bit a lot better than I could because I'm just talking from observation. I, well, yeah, yeah, I do recall um, one of the ways it was described to me as uh, if you take two mechs of the same tonnage, they can run, let's say hypothetically, the same weapons you're always going to pick the one that has the smallest profile and the best hitboxes. And uh, that's what happens with Mech Lab, is that unless the mechs are just really distinctly unique from each other in some way that Mech Lab isn't allowed to change, then you're always just going to go for the best chassis. And then you wouldn't see the other chassis show up at all. So, for example... Uh, you would never see, say, a Hellhound, maybe, or a, a, like a, in um, not pure tech, um, in when it's mixed tech, for example, you might never see a Bushwhacker. Uh, exactly. You'd only see Ryokans. Exactly. Um, and this is the the, the kind of the, um, the theory I also brought up with um, the systems. Like, you got a hunchback. Okay, the hunchback's not on the game, but you got a hunchback and you got a shadow hawk. If you could allow the shadow hawk to carry an AC twenty, you've effectively made the hunchback obsolete yes. because the shadow hawk has a slimmer profile, it is five times heavier, and is now jump capable with mounting an AC twenty. So you know, you've just made one mech obsolete with a mech lab. Yeah, we actually already have a system against that kind of thing. We have our ports and hard points, which could effectively prevent that. Yeah, well, at least there's that kind of measure in place, whereas, you know, somewhere in another game, that doesn't apply, and that's what throws that off, mm -hmm. way off the mark. I know with, um, I know. Uh, for example, one of the ways that the build rules could totally be abused uh, was there was a Ryokan I came up with that had 12 heavy small lasers. Yeah. I mean, um, to, to, to summarize it, um, even, even without the build rules, I think one of the big emphases is, uh, and, um, and, uh, in terms of design choice was just like making mechs feel unique, like, especially in Battletech, like, um, a lot of the canon variants that you have, they, people, have known them for a long while and there's just a few unique combinations that people uh, grew to like and like every mech has a sort of characteristics to it that that people know uh, at least in, in a lot of cases and um the thing is having those manual variants i think uh, helped that a bit also and not not just between uh, or across a mech chassis but also within the same chassis basically rather like the, the work that, that Invictus has put in, um, that that goes a bit back to the question you asked, like what what the focus of the dev team was is um, he's made sure that all the variants, even of one chassis, all played differently and all were viable. So even though um, that the variants um, before the community edition happened, that there, there wasn't that many more variants actually. Um, or th that many less variants, I mean. But uh, what basically happened is by 
finally tweaking every single variant and making sure everyone, every of them has a place on the battlefield that actually really increased the variety because since it's, it's a multiplayer game and it's, well, at least sort of competitive, um, you would obviously want to have a good pick that is um, also competitive in terms of game balancing. So by making every or most variants viable in some sort of way, you instantly increase the variety on the battlefield, both um, within a chassis and also across chassis. That's that's a really good think, uh, example of that. Would be like the Osiris, for example. Uh, there's the um, Osiris Alpha, I believe, that has three medium X pulse lasers and a streak four. Uh, and then you've got I don't remember the designation of it, but it's another Osiris, and it's got two. Uh, rotary autocannon twos and three machine guns. Both of them are high damage per second uh, mechs. They don't do burst damage well. They stare at their target. They're both good at at running away from the target uh, or towards it because uh, when it's running away, it can rotate the its t- um, torso all the way around and fire as it's running away, uh, kiting their target. Both of them are really good at that. Despite that, that they fill such similar roles, each of them is a little bit different because one of them has 800 meters of range, um, almost 900 meters of effective range. The other one only does 500 meters of range. And so while they both serve very similar roles in the battlefield, they're very clearly different. And, uh, you know, no two Osiruses are the same. That's what I think... Um, allows us to not have a mech lab is that the sheer amount of assets and the sheer number of variants per asset means there is definitely going to be something for everyone, regardless of what your playstyle is, because there's so many there's so many variants out there already in the game that you're bound to find something that's going to work for you. Yeah, definitely. See, that, that actually brings me to another, um, to another point, uh, if you don't mind me uh, sidetracking it a little oh, bit or bringing it back to that question. Like, uh, when you asked uh, what we were focusing on um, regarding, like, compared to the old dev team, uh, one of the things we were also focusing on was um, accessibility and usability. Like, um, when, when Korn said... Uh, there's so many variants and so many combinations that that really reminds me of that. It actually took us a while to get there. We didn't get that get straight there um, with the first release, but um, one of the problems uh, with accessibility um, for MacWarrior Living Legends for a long time was that as a new player, you just came into the game, and if you're lucky, you made it down the hangar and actually managed to open the buy menu. <laughs> um, but not just that. Then you had a huge buy menu with you with, with mech names you never heard. And um, you opened that and then you had a description, which was basically a huge table of um, abbreviations like CER, LBL and stuff like that. And if you didn't actually look it up on the wiki or had some other idea or played like a lot of MechWarrior 4 or something like that, and even then the abbreviations are different. You basically had to try out every combination and slowly learn what the actual abbreviations for the weapons mean. I mean, uh, there's like a dozens of weapons, so you actually had to get used even to that. And that, that, that was a big accessibility hurdle, actually. And um, eventually, um, we replaced that and actually just 
made a bigger buy menu where all of that was spelled out. So it was a bit more uh, just easier to read. And there was a lot of little quality of life improvements that's been done. Like the hardware has been improved. So it's got better, better visibility. Um, we, we improved the standard controls team. So it was a bit more, um, user, user friendly and just loads of little things. And well, yeah, not now, just you, that. now there's actually buttons to swap between the different, um, reticle modes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, also I think there's, um, there's probably a worth for a good shout out to everything that's been done in the infrastructure that um, that killed a lot of other games. Like, for instance, the GameSpy shutdown. Um, um, it's actually we've actually been able to work around that as well and uh, basically get keep Living Legends going independent of GameSpy, which was a challenge on of itself. Yeah, who all worked on that GameSpy thing? I, I remember uh, um, what Striker was involved at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on that uh was star also involved on that harp you want to say more on that no that was pretty much me uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we started off trying another another service called q trigger which was basically a games replacement that didn't work out in the long term because that guy had to shut down due to ddos attacks i think so we had to think of an alternative I cobbled something together with a few things I found on the net. Uh, some kind of GameSpy emulator that just fakes the login, the entire login process, and I somehow made it work. And I'm pretty happy it's still working at this point. Yeah, good job there. Thank yeah, you. Because before we had to go all the way into the Windows host file to edit some stuff, and that sometimes put people off. <laughs> so this whole new system was a welcome relief. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the coolest things now, now, now that, that that Harp brought that up, just to think back, is how often we've basically faced seemingly impossible odds. Like there was so much shit we had to put up with, and 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 every time we we managed something, something else came up that was like some sort of impending doom on the horizon. Like first of all, that game spy thing, game spy was shutting down, and we're like. Well, shit! What are we doing now? And we were—we had to look really hard and actually uh, see how we can actually make the replacement work. Because the, there was other game spy alternatives, but even they were were struggling. And I don't, don't even know if they're still around. But maybe can Harp can say some more on that uh, after after as well. And not just that; it's like just actually getting around the old cheat protection, um, figuring out how we get a. Ver- a version of the game to actually start from uh, with actual development. Um, then that whole, all those technical questions, like, can is it even possible for the engines to put more mechs in, or have we have we reached the engines limit? Uh, that was so many, so yeah, many. That was part of the reason why the uh, Anubis was chosen uh, to yeah. be another light mech for the Inner Sphere because the Anubis's legs. Um, in many of the drawings don't look that different from the legs of the solitaire. So that was a case of, well, we can just reuse the legs from the solitaire instead of having to create brand new legs that might uh, be uh, approaching or, you know, approaching the limit of the, of the engine can do. 
And yet, here we still are, pumping more things into the game and still going strong. Yep. If I could sum up the entire development of Living Legends from the new team's perspective, it was basically any problem that we were thrown with was met with, hold my beer, comment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like, it's been crazy. How are we going to get this fixed? Hops is like, hold my beer. How are we going to get the legs to work? Invictus like, hold my beer. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, just getting the, get, even getting the version of the game. Like, I've chased people across the globe, and I don't oh. think I'm allowed to even, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not even allowed to say uh, who, who we get it from, or, or I don't want to say it anyways, but it, it was crazy. Like, um, basically, <laughs> the way we started with the rebalancing for the half first half year, we just worked with some sort of some sort of Russian version that got the cheat protection stripped out with some magic we don't even know because we didn't manage to get that going. And basically, what we did is while well, Invictus was um, basically working on the balance and trying uh, everything with the stuff we had, uh, I was basically <laughs> chasing people across the globe uh, pretty much <laughs> and just following every lead that I had for someone who might still have a, a, a backup from the old repository because people basically nuked it. There, there wasn't actually a trace of it left, but apparently some people still had some old private backups laying around and um, we kind of managed to get like three different versions, none of them being exactly what we needed and we kind of, after, I, I think... Coupling that together was quite the task. <laughs> yeah. you. Frankenstein <laughs> world is an underrated term. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty crazy. And th- that was just one of those things, too. Like, um, is it ever... Are we ever going to make that work? Like, um, that, that alone was a huge factor for team morale. And it, it was amazing when we actually managed it to work. Like, hell, just get, getting the fucking thing to compile took forever because there was so many things that were, that were issues. And there was no documentation for it, so it was all trial and error. Yeah, we were swinging in the dark. I was so nervous that all of this effort was not going to be in vain that I was crossing my fingers so hard my hands were getting cramps. Yeah. I was yeah. just like, please just fucking compile. Just compile. And it's like, hey, guys, we've got to compile. I was just like, oh, God, thank you. Thank goodness. Yeah, that that was crazy. <laughs> we had a we had a fair share of bugs, but you know we worked through those as well, like the infamous uh, <clears throat> plasma gun perk. Uh, I mean, quirk <laughs> that turned the awesome into the most lethal <laughs> yeah. thing on the battlefield. And that's a good step against uh. it. Yeah, and not to talk about the release. Actually, the first release it didn't didn't go so well either. Like there was the whole thing with the cheat protection, and we we were just kind of hopeful. Like we were just like, yeah, it's probably not so bad. It's gonna work, but it completely fucked us over. Like um, basically, there was a really nasty bug with the cheat protection that made it so whenever you loaded a custom map, basically, yeah, I forgot, would it crash the client? Would it crash the server? It's been so long ago. I think it even crashed the server, wasn't it, Harp? I actually don't remember. Yeah, I, I basically I don't I don't remember it exactly either. But basically, um, 
we've reworked something in the cheat protection really um, close to launch. Um, and then uh, we basically, we already had committed to the deadline. Yeah, big mistake there. Um, and, and that uh, we basically released it with a game-breaking bug, and it took us, like I think, a week or two to actually uh, fix that, which which really sucked because we got a really amazing um, PR beat out. Uh, GameStar wrote about us, a lot of, um, I think, PC Gamer, and a lot of cool... Um, online um, platforms wrote about us and we got a some of the early surge. streamers exactly yeah we got a huge surge of new players but the problem is we could only play with the official maps then and there was a lot of bugs and um, that means uh, the player curve actually declined very fast a lot faster than it uh, than it should have we managed to recover it still and it still grew nicely especially our streamers um, uh, big thank you to everyone who streamed this game. They were basically who brought us so many new players in. That was amazing. They really helped. But the launch was Shibaxi. quite a... Yeah, we had Shavaxi and Fontomen and uh, Tex and... Uh, uh, oh, well, uh, what's was, that? Uh, Blue Drake? Yeah, Blue Drake. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, that was amazing. There's actually a huge lesson. Like for I don't know if any, anybody listened to listening to this is uh, working on games themselves, but the, uh, there's a couple big lessons I've learned there in terms of just um, managing uh, releases of games. Uh, first of all, I mean that can't be said enough. Anyways, is uh, always take enough time to test stuff. Uh, yeah. Sounds obvious, but it's it's very rarely done. But uh, second of all, and that's something which is funny. Um, that's the feedback I actually got from a professional producer uh, once I got into the industry. Um, I was telling him about that stuff, and that like after launch we had all the those bugs, and about basically we announced the launch date, and then we got into basically a crunch because we realized shit we have bugs and we have to hold the launch date. And that guy really told me something that, that, that kind of blew my mind. He's like, well, why the hell did you announce a launch date? Like, do you have a publisher who's forcing you to do that? I'm like, no. And then I was like, yeah, in our case, it was just uh, the rejection of the all the mods out there that always say, uh, when are we releasing? Expected, yeah. expected, and they just say soon, TM. Yeah, yeah, excited to do that, but it's uh, it's like um, I learned then that even a lot of small indie studios, uh, a lot of them only commit to a launch when everything is in the clear. If they even do, sometimes um, sometimes they even just launch because um, if if you're small, having one big PR beat is all you can manage. Uh, a, a games outlet will only write about you once. Um, they won't write about you twice. You're not Skyrim or not even some sort of, um, doesn't even need to be a AAA title. Um, there will be one article and then it's gone. So what do you want to do is you want to have that one article when the player can already download the game and get it going. So um, there's actually a lot of um, a lot of uh, marketing experience that speaks uh, if you're a small uh, project to just... Um, well, announce it when it launches. Of course, there's still a lot of other factors to consider here too. Like if you've got a Kickstarter, you cannot do that. You've got to build the community before you, you do that, before you launch the Kickstarter. But if you just do a normal mod, yeah, 
don't announce a launch date unless you already got everything go- going because nobody's going to commit you for it anyways. Well, at least that's our experience. <laughs> Your mileage may vary still, but I just thought it would be uh, interesting to bring on. So earlier you were talking about um, <coughs> the uh, specific assets available in the game and having variants and how that uh, speaks to the balance of the game and how it how it helps out the balance. Um, we actually had an episode, uh, episode four of the Returning to Base podcast, that was all about the stats of what variants of each asset gets played the most. And there's a website um, that's managed by Rick the Stick, um, one of our uh, more recent uh, dev team members, um, and he uh, he manages this website and he keeps all the stats that he harvests from uh, uh, Rick Hunter's 12 Vegan Rangers servers. And um, it was really interesting to see the names of all the different players that play a lot and how some of the players that do play the most aren't even on there hardly because they smurf. Uh, they, they change their names so often that uh, <laughs> the statistics aren't accurate for them. <laughs> and uh it was also really cool seeing like how often people bought certain Macs, but at the same time, despite how frequently people were buying them, they're still buying more diverse um selection of Macs than we presume were being purchased back at the beginning of or at the end of uh Wandering Samurai. Because I remember with Wandering Samurai, you just came out with the uh SRM Owens every single game uh and yeah every engagement was a bloody thing yeah and now uh sure the the default mech to take out is the raven bravo with the lbx10 and the three small pulse lasers and all the crazy electronics it comes with but that said there are plenty of first engagements i'll see in a match now where that mech doesn't even show up and it's the one that's the most purchased. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of the system I've always preferred in whatever game I've ever played, is that variety of life. If you're going to encounter the same mech or the same tank on every engagement, it's going to become so dead, dull, and boring that you, there's just no more excitement anymore. I kind of like to see a greater variety of units being deployed to the field because it feels more like like how it should be, you know. Yeah. We're not just restricted to one battle mech. We've got different, we've got commandos here. We've got javelins, not javelins, we've got silhouettes, solitaires, silhouettes, solitaires over there. We've got Owens over here. We've got some light tanks pushing up in this area. It just adds more to the battlefield vibe than just, oh, let's just spam Owens, you know. Exactly, exactly that. And it's, I think it's what you have to do because otherwise having all those different weapon systems in the game it's all just fluff if the meta game is so uh, defined that it's only one variant that's useful yeah and even in the chaos march competitive um, casual competitive the whole way the drop system worked in the battle value is you your build would vary very differently from drop to drop and you wouldn't just spam one type of mech with one type of build, you know. You would take into consideration what was going to happen, and you would have a variety of things. You might have two riflemen supported by two Uziels, 
or you may be going with a pair of demolisher tanks supported by a pair of assault mechs. You know, it was it, it add every battle was different. You know, a good example of how um, much improvement has happened with the balance over time in Chaos March. The importance of battle value assigned to each asset and each variant became far less important. I remember it being very contentious early on, like, oh, should this be two stars or three stars? But towards the end, you know, it wasn't just for lack of involvement or anything. There just was less reason to have them ranked. Uh, and the, the ranks were, the, the opinions were less important. Because things were more balanced. Yeah. And that's not to say that things are completely balanced, because there's, there's no way. But, uh, and there's always going to be uh, outliers here or there whenever a new weapon system gets added, whenever a new variant is created. But uh, yeah, all in all, we're definitely way more balanced than we used to be. And uh, I was just thinking about that uh, uh, Mech Lab mention earlier, uh, a good example of a mech lab meta mech that would probably show up a lot more often was the uh, light goss Fafnir that had the four light goss and it, <laughs> yeah, all that pinpoint damage at one and one component from 1200 meters. You know, mm. it's, they don't, they don't do that much damage, but when you've got four of them together yeah. <laughs> at that range. Yeah. The um, problem was the range. Ah, uh, sorry, yeah. Corin, you you continue. <laughs> and on a platform that anything really being fired back of it, back of it. In single player, it doesn't matter so much if it's imbalanced because you you play the game for other reasons. But in multiplayer games, um, the balancings, the, ver the 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 variants that come across, the dynamic between the players is basically your content. So if that is made in a way that doesn't work out with the balancing. You still have a cool game, but you've got nothing that, that will keep players uh, or that will really work out well long-term. I mean, Living Legend still survived a long time, so it <laughs> still did, did really well, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, good balancing is the lifeblood of a multiplayer game, in my opinion. And occasional um, changes to shake it up really helps. Yeah. And the fact that we have so many rights being played uh, kind of confirms that we're doing the right thing now. Definitely. Well, it, I mean, it's it's still here after eleven years, so there must be we must be doing something good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. All right. Well, we're coming up on almost uh, an hour and a half here, so I think that's probably long enough for an episode. Uh, thanks so much for uh, making time to uh, come record with me. Thanks for having us. It was good. I really, really enjoyed talking about our our experiences in this journey that we've had. Yeah, it's been really amazing. Uh, thank you, everybody. It's uh, it's been a joy uh, doing this podcast with you all. Um, and yeah, just thinking back to all this, it's been forever ago, but it's some really amazing memories. So yeah, thank you, everybody, including yeah, yeah. our thank listeners you. and playing. This has been Returning to Base, a Mech Warrior Living Legends podcast. And I'd like to give a special shout out to Shivaxi for doing our ending and Timothy Seals for doing our opening theme. <laughs>